20 through 26. If you know that passage, you know why. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. Now in a large house, there are, not, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some of honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Our Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel and the privilege to communicate it. We ask that you'd uh, bring these truths, as we're going to study them this morning, to our hearts fresh, so that we will be equipped, as Paul is teaching Timothy, we'll be equipped to do the work you have for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul gives the great summary, the firm foundation. He says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. This is a statement of God's responsibility, of God's operation, of God's securing us, of God knowing, not of us knowing, of God knowing. The other side of it deals with our responsibility, our operation, our dealing with God as we should. And the other side, he is to abstain from wickedness, everyone who names the name of the Lord. So on the one hand, God knows his, and some of his are disobedient, rebellious wretches. And, and I mean, you too. And, and he also will have responsibilities for those who are his. Those who name the name of the Lord are to abstain from wickedness. And so I want you to see that there is a relationship developed in this summary firm foundation. There is your security and your responsibility. Do you see the security? The Lord knows those who are his. He knows those who are his. But on the other side, if you name the name of the Lord, you're to abstain from wickedness. Many observations. You don't secure yourself. God secures you. Your security is not, or your assurance of your security is not in your performance, but in God's word, his promises, his person, his character. If he says that my sheep hear my voice, if he says no one can take uh, those that are in my hand out of my hand, if, if the father uh, has a love manifested toward you that nothing can overcome in Romans 8, then by that word of God's promise, you are secure and you should have your assurance there. And if you have that assurance, beloved, then you better be naming the name of the Lord. Of course, that's who you are. So now you have responsibilities. I believe Christian performance is built on the firm foundation of our security in Christ. That's a different approach from the theology that says your life is an experiment to see if you really believe by how you really perform. That's not, to me, what the New Testament is teaching us. The firm foundation is God knows those who are his and you should act like it. See, grace says God has done all this for you. So now you, a personal being, responding to that grace you've received in gratitude, having received gratis grace, in your gratitude, you are 
responding to God in your obedience and your love for him. That's the relationship that Paul describes here. Now, verse 20 tells us something that we don't want to think about at times. Some of us are vessels of honor and some of us are vessels of dishonor. And it's in the same household. And that's important in context. Now, in a large house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wooden and clay. Some are for honor, while some are for dishonor. Let me tell you how, how geeky I am about the grammar. This is an adjective, and this is a genitive. So I translate it as a genitive, and I translate this one as an adjective. And then when I read it to you later, I'm like, I should have said of wood, because that would have been more symmetrical. But anyway, we, we digress. The point is that it's very obvious. Some of the pots in the house are gold and silver, and you bring them out to serve the special thing in the special dish. And some of the other things are not for these purposes, and you have to catch some things with certain pots and vessels, and you don't bring out the gold and silver for those things. There's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. All right, everybody pick which one you're going to be. Pick your side, vessel of honor, vessel of dishonor. Kitchen or, or privy, you pick which one. I'll, let, I'll give you a second to think about it. Because that's what Paul is doing because of what he says in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things that he's been talking about in context, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, to the master for every good work. He doesn't say that you are determined from eternity past by God's good, sovereign pleasure, which God is sovereign and he does decide what he decides. But by his sovereign design, it works this way. You must cleanse yourself. Remember, everyone that names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. You must cleanse yourself of these wicked things. Personal sin, categories of personal sin in context. Most especially in context of verbal sins. Cleanse yourself of these false teachings. Of these distractions to your spiritual life. And you will be a vessel of honor. You'll be set apart to God. That's what sanctified means. And useful to the master for every good work. Ever have a day you feel like a pot of wood or a pot of clay? I don't feel particularly sanctified. I'm not particularly grateful. Somehow our feelings leach into our thinking. We might feel bad or uncomfortable or whatever and... Creeping, a creeping sense of disaffection or even bitterness rises in us. I shouldn't have to feel this way. And there you are, a, a vessel of clay. Because we're not cleansing ourselves from these things. But I just want you to see the way Paul writes this. It isn't set what you are. It's your choice. Cleanse yourself from these things. This is written to believers to say... You need to be that vessel of gold, that silver platter that we bring out the, the brisket on. Sanctified and useful to the master for every good work. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that last clause that we don't really think about. I'm still thinking about, I want to be a vessel of silver or gold. I don't want to be a vessel of wood or clay. I want to be useful to God. I want to be used in the service in the kitchen, not in the privy. I don't want to be that chamber pot. I want to be useful to God in something that's honorable. 
Listen to what he says. Useful to the master for every good work. The outcome of you setting yourself apart to God. The outcome of you saying no to sinful lusts and yes to God's work in you. Yes to his word, which by the way is the key to avoiding the sinful lust. That the word that saturates you and motivates you because you choose to relate to God personally. That taking in the word and praying it back to God in your personal relationship with him. This outcome is that you're useful to the master for his work. Spiritual growth is not an end in itself. Being set apart to God and walking by the Spirit is not an end in itself. It's the means and context in which you do God's work. No, you don't deserve it. Think with me in your heart about the calling of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6. Where when he sees the distinction between God and his perfect righteousness and him and his sinfulness, especially with how he uses his mouth, he is slain. Talk about being slain in the spirit. I was talking to one of you earlier about people that say they're slain in the spirit. Let's try this one on. If you could see the difference between your sin and God's righteousness, you would hit your face and say, I'm ruined. I am a shoe in for the lake of fire. I deserve to be there forever and ever and ever in comparison to the perfect, holy righteousness of God. That's the nature of sin. But Isaiah confesses his sin. Woe is me for I'm ruined. I've seen the Holy One of God. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And the angel grabs a coal from the fire of it, the incense fire there in the the Holy of Holies in the throne room of God. And he goes and cleanses Isaiah's mouth. He In this vision, he burns his mouth. And the angel says, this has cleansed your lips. The point at which he said he was defiled. It's an illustration. It's a a vision. Understand, he confessed it. He was cleansed. And then what? Then God said, who will go and speak for me? And Isaiah said, I'm here, send me. This is the story of the person that doesn't deserve to be using God's work. But because he's been rendered fit by God's grace when he confesses sins, he is now useful to God for his work. He's fit. We don't deserve it. We'll never deserve it. Jesus is the deserving one of all good things. But because we have him, we can be made fit to do the work that he has for us. And that's what's going on here. You have to choose. I don't care what Bible translation you read it in. If they're dealing faithfully with the uh, particles, for example, the aeon, the, uh, the third class condition of yes, or it could, be go, it could go either way, the way it's stated. If he should, maybe he will, maybe he not cleanse himself from these things. Then in the future, he will be a vessel unto honor. Beloved, you can be what God wants for you to be. And what he wants you to be is that silver vessel. He wants you to be that pot of gold. He wants you to be used for his glorious purposes. God does not want to demonstrate his faithfulness as a loving father and a good shepherd in your divine discipline, even to the point of the sin unto death in 1 John 5. He doesn't want to do it that way. He wants you to be a vessel of honor, but you have to, as a believer, cleanse yourself from this defilement. Paul is not preaching, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to non-believers. He's telling people who do and have believed on Christ at a point in life, they are believing in Christ and we continue to trust in Jesus Christ. And he is saying, you have a responsibility right now. It's your sanctification. 
advance the discussion, translated now, duh, from the youthful lusts, flee. What are the youthful lusts? Is he talking about physical youth, the onset of puberty, sex drive, these kinds of things? Or is he talking about spiritual youth when someone's a new believer? I think it's the former. From these things that tend to characterize young people, run from these things. Let me take a little bit different tack than you may be thinking on the youthful lusts. Certainly the sex drive is a big part of this discussion. Certainly. And this is and, and youthful lusts are where sex drive is undirected, not directed towards wife or husband, the only legitimate direction for one's sexual appetite, a legitimate appetite God has given us. When you drive it somewhere else, when it's when it's a general approach, that becomes lust. And that is the problem of fornication. It's the destruction of every civilization which it's tried, and ours is no different. Now, let's take a little bit different tack. What are the kids most afraid of in a wealthy country? In a poor country, they may be most afraid of hunger, most concerned with hunger. Their life is a continual fast, and all we can think about when we're hungry is that we're hungry. If you're fed in a subsistence way where uh, you might miss a meal here and there, you can always have that sharpened appetite. Eventually you go hungry enough and you, you start not feeling so, so poignant about it. But I'm talking about that subsistence life where we might miss a meal because things didn't quite go right. You're really going to feel that. In our culture where people generally are not hungry, if you are hungry, come talk to us. There's no reason for anyone here to go hungry in this country. Period. But if you are, come talk to us. We should discuss this. This isn't what people in our country are afraid of. What are kids afraid of? Their, their primal fear is the fear of all children who are told that we're going on a three-hour road trip. Boredom. I have to sit in the car for three hours. Oh. That's first world fear. They're afraid to death of boredom. That's why little boys and little girls get in trouble, especially little boys, blowing things up, setting things on fire. They're just fighting the boredom. Everything's broken. Why is everything broken? Because they're bored. You got to put them to work. That lust for constant stimulation, beloved, and the culture in which we live, we are feeding the children garbage to satisfy their lust for constant stimulation. We're feeding it to them because it satiates them and we can get something done. We're turning on the TV or the Netflix or whatever, and we're, let, and, or, or we're giving them the little games and we're letting them run and just fill their head and fill their time because otherwise they're going to break stuff and get in trouble. It at least keeps them peaceable. We can have some moments peace. And we sacrifice the training opportunity to say your life is not about satisfying your lust for stimulation. Our life is God's works. See what I mean? This, this speaks to our culture, this question of youthful lusts. And Paul says it in a general way. It could mean sexual lust, and certainly that's part of it. But we have all kinds of problems where we're trying to satisfy ourselves. If you turned off the power in this country, 
your average teenager, boy, especially, I don't know about girls in gaming, but boys in gaming, with, their, with the way their brain works and their eyes, you turn off the power for a month, you will have many people die of a broken heart. Just the idea that their addiction has been shut off, not tapered off, not weaned off, but just cold turkey. It's gone. What will we do with our lives? Because we have to face the reality that life is going by at one second at a time. And the blue sky is blue sometimes and it's gray other times. And we have to go work when the sun is out and we have to sleep when the sun goes down and we have to just live in the world God has given us. We're desperate to get away from it. And it's tragic. I don't just want to preach on this because I have an ax to grind. Beloved, your kids, they are their own in the fact that, in, in that they're going to have to make their own choices with their lives. I love them. I know I don't love them as much as you do, but you don't love them as much as God does. And what I want to say is what we've done in our culture in the last 30 years by meeting lust with fulfillment that doesn't really satisfy and not saying, let's learn the hard truth that sometimes the road trip is three hours. Sometimes the best thing for you is to read. And if you're too tired to read, then rest. The fact that we have not taught them to be aggressive in meeting that concern of boredom with work, with industry, with with use of their bodies in, in good pursuits, the fact that we have satisfied them to give ourselves a few moments of peace in the day means that we have trained, or I should say raised, uh, a generation of lazy, no-account sluggards. And they've worked so hard on their games to do nothing. And if you've ever played a video game, most of you, I'm looking around, the moms are like, what is he talking about? Do you understand that when they're playing games, they're accomplishing things? Boys are conquering. They are dominating. They are learning skills and accomplishing in the environment of the game things that they couldn't do before. And they're learning. Their brain is learning as they do it. This is the argument of the gamer. No, oh, it's good. There's all kinds of good things about it. It's true. They're actually making something happen within the environment of the game. But the truth is, in the reality of the real world, they're doing Nothing. This is one example of youthful lusts. The lust to satisfy my need for instant stimulation. You get done with a visit with your friend and automatically you're calling the next friend. Because I've got to have something to fill the space of realizing that I'm living this life. And sometimes it's okay to be alone. We've seen this. All of us have grown through this. And helping children through it, it's part of their growing up. My, my prayer for you is that you're not helping them through it by stunting their growth with the answer that, yes, we can instantly satisfy all your lust for stimulation right now. Don't do it. I beg of you. But I'm begging God more than I'm begging you. And, uh, and I, I know that uh, he's going to have his way. In history, I do also know this. We need to have compassion for the kids that are addicts. Kids that are screen addicts, you have to have compassion for them. This is the way their brain chemistry is now wired, and they are struggling. There are recovery clinics now for gaming addiction. 
I'm talking about video games, not gambling. They may be down the, down the hall from the gambling addiction guy. And it looks like addiction with all the, all the, the behaviors and maladjustment. And what do you do with this? You have compassion. And you say, hey, God can work in you. And you can get past this. And you can live the life that God wants you to live without this crutch. And um, interestingly, the last note on this, those of you who are uh, struggling with this, I want to remind you of just a way of thinking about life. I've never seen, I've never, I've, well, I can think of two instances, but they're kids. I've never seen an instance where the hero in an action movie or the hero in an action novel or anything that's like a, a salutary character that's somebody you want to emulate, they're never watching TV. They're never playing video games. They're always doing the thing that saves the people from the, the threat at the end. They're always diffusing the bomb. They're not out there watching people do it. They're doing it. That's a little bit of a casting the vision of how to live this life. But anyway, what are we running away from? We're running, fleeing from youthful lusts. Word for uh, where we get the word flee. Um, and then, but pursue what you're dioko, what you're running toward. Paul puts these two ideas in opposition to each other. Run away from this, run toward this. Pursue, like run towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a clean heart. Sanctify yourselves from these things and you will be a vessel of honor. Let's have a pure heart in how we run toward righteousness, faith, love. Uh, Pistis, agape, and irene are three nouns that we find in Galatians 5.22 describing the fruit of the Spirit. There, Paul says, this is what the Holy Spirit bears in you if you walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. Here he says, you need to run after these things. You need to pursue them. I am seeking righteousness, just like Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. Oh, that was for Israel. Now that's for mankind, loving God and wanting righteousness. Pursue righteousness, faith, or faithfulness, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a clean heart. Notice the context in which you run after these things. You're doing it with the others that are doing it. Christianity does not generally happen as an individual with his Bible and the Lord in a cave. Unless we get together, all together in the cave. We've got a nice cave here. I think it smells better in here. Let me finish. Then the catacombs in Rome, you with me? Where they would have to meet, where they're dead or buried and disintegrating. A little musty down in the catacombs. Maybe that's why the incense, I don't know. Anyway, the point is, pursue righteousness. Run after these things. Dioko means to, to pursue like you're, in run, you're running in a chase. So you're running away from youthful lust and you're running after righteousness. That's a great image we can all sort of sink our teeth into. But the foolish and untaught speculations reject. Apaiduo is based on a word. It's a, it's, a, it's a verb that's related to the word paiduo to train a child, to teach or educate. It can be translated educate. A paideon is a child in the parent's training. So that's this word group. And so we're educating those that are uneducated. The untaught is my translation of this person. And the zetasis, the things that are being sought after, 
translated correctly, speculations. But foolish and untaught speculations reject. It's all over the internet. It's all over YouTube. It's all over TV. It's all over when you see somebody say, I know the special way, the special mystical insight to interpret the prophecies of Isaiah or whoever to read them out of our newspaper today. No, you don't. Generally, if it's sensational, it belongs in this category. It's, there's going to be some sort of speculation. The most recent one that, well, not the most recent one, but a recent one that I spent a few minutes on was the four blood moons. Something is going to change. If you don't know what I'm talking about, but if you do know what I'm talking about, I hope you hear what I'm saying. My brother in Christ was horribly mistaken about the nature of the lunar cycle and what the prophecies of Scripture have to say about the, the current time in which we live. Avoid these foolish and untaught speculations. That's what we're talking about. And with regard to that particular preacher, Israel has always had to trust in Christ, the Messiah, for their salvation. There has never been a time in world history where those people needed to keep the law for their salvation. It is not true now. It is not true from the days of, of David or of Moses in Israel or of even Abraham. It has always been faith in the promise of the Messiah that has been for salvation. And so that heresy that anyone ever kept the law to be saved really has to be denounced, even if he's got a big church in Texas, even if he's on TV. I would say especially in these cases. All right. The foolish and untaught speculations reject because you know that they produce quarrels. So what do we do with them? We box them in and we reject them. They produce quarrels. I'm not going to get into it is the idea. That is a mess. I'm not stepping in that mess. That's the idea Paul tells Timothy to engage. Now the slave, doulos, translated bondservant, that is just for American sensibilities that we translate that bondservant. It means somebody that whether it's for seven years or 70 years, they are owned by another person. And what we say without any flinching is that means a slave. If someone bought you with the blood of Christ, then just accept it. You've been bought. You're owned. Praise the Lord God Almighty that he owns you. In this illustration, the slave of the Lord, the one working for the Lord must not be quarrelsome. He must not be quarrelsome. Wait a second. Foolish and untaught speculation reject because they produce quarrels. We must not be quarrelsome. But he should be kind toward all. See, I told you it's going to thrash me. He should be kind toward all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged. I believe every word here, and I try this out. And when I try to do this. I try, to, I try to live in these words. And I have a pretty tight connection with my conscience when I fall short of it. And I keep short accounts with God about it. And there's a fine line. It's a, it's a difficult spot to, to notice whether I'm in violation of what God is saying here between me and God and whether someone's angry at me. Right? You tell the truth. We lay it out there and... We do it winsomely, but we need to make sure we're communicating the truth. And I, I think we have to always check on this. We must not be quarrelsome. I try not to, 
I try not to wrangle. The last time I had to deal with a foolish speculation situation, I finally had to say, I think we're finished with this conversation. I just can't continue in this conversation. This has to come to a close. Oh, is that oh, just the fury? I, I can't quarrel with you. And we try to be kind of, as challenged when I first came here, one of my... Uh, one of my dear friends in the Lord asked me, are we trying to become, you know, like George H.W. Bush said, a kinder, gentler version of ourselves? We're we going for kinder, gentler. And I said, no. <laughs> it says in the text, we have to be kind toward all. We have to be. That's the proverb that you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. It's the simple principle of the compassion you have for the lost. The people that that are, are being discussed here are unbelievers and they're false teachers. And you have to be compassionate. Think about it this way. The Bible says that, the, that Satan and his fallen angels have deceived the nations. He's the deceiver of all the nations. That's the truth that, of the circumstance they're in. So when you're dealing with someone who's deceived... It's like a person that comes in that's blind, comes into the clinic, and you don't chastise them for their blindness. You're a doctor, you're a physician, you're trying to, to solve what the problem is. You're trying to help them see. And so that's hard to do. It's very hard to think this way for two reasons. The first is a positive reason. You want to hang on to the truth and this person is trafficking lies and you want to be gentle and kind, but they're, it's a, they're, they're living a lie and they're, they're teaching lies. And so you want to hang on to that truth. That's the positive. The negative side is that you feel I'm porous, you're porous. We connect to people. They influence us. I don't want to lose the truth and go toward the error. I don't want to become like them. Well, you don't. That's why Paul's talking to Timothy here and saying you have a responsibility. This is the meat of Timothy's trouble is the false teachers and how to confront them. You can't go in there ready to fight. You can't do it that way, but yet you have to win in the engagement. So you're gentle, you're kind, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged. I have pleased to say I've very rarely been wronged as a pastor here trying to think of what Timothy's going through. He, I, I know of pastors. I've got a lot of friends that are pastors, seminary uh, buddies and stuff that have struggled in ministry. It's very uncommon for a pastor to stay in one church in his first ministry for more than a few years. Very uncommon to beat seven years, almost unheard of to go for two times seven years. And it's just the nature of churchianity in part. You're always going to deal with people at all levels of maturity. And if the majority is immature, you're going to get immature experiences. That's part of the problem. But anyway, I've very rarely been wronged, but I know well that when it does happen, I want it to be righted. <laughs> I've been wronged. Just let it go. It's the Lord. Just put it on him. You're speaking for him. If there's anything valuable that I have to say, it's really the Lord's, just like Jesus said about his father. So it's about him. Just let it, just let him have the reproach. It's easy to say when I'm not being wronged. When I am being wronged, it's hard to say, but it's still true. In humility, my Bible says gentleness, but this word, prautes, is 
Better translated, humbling yourself. In humility, correcting those who are opposed. How about this word? We just had it a second ago. The untaught. The untaught with their speculations. Paiduo. Educating them. Let me educate you. That's not mansplaining. (laughs) Remember that from last year? Mansplaining is when a man starts to explain things to a woman. That's what they call mansplaining. And manspreading is when a man sits on the subway and his legs are all wide and uh, he's taking up the seats next to him. And she bagging is when she puts her bag on the seat next to her and you can't get a seat on the subway. This is urban culture. You press some people don't even know that. But anyway, <laughs> manspreading and she bagging, mansplaining, all kinds of fun, stupid words. We used to call them sniglets. Remember sniglets? A mystery is when you put apostrophe S and you meant plural. That's putting apostrophe in the wrong, misplaced apostrophe. That's a mystery. Pastor David's afternoon, you better get done. And humility, correcting those who are opposed, is almost an oxymoron. I have to bring correction, an educational correction to someone, but I have to do it in humility. If I'm telling you how it is, doesn't mean that mean that I'm over you? Well, that's how our sin nature thinks. But actually, I can come alongside you, and I've seen this done. My, my favorite person to, to tell you about that I've seen doing this is Charles Clough, one of my great mentors in the Word, who, when there's a face, a head-to-head conflict with someone on, on a, a pers- perspective, Charlie is, a, I hope I'll embarrass him for saying this about him, but he is a master at figuratively just kind of coming alongside and saying, yeah, I totally know what you're saying. And, uh, you know, we should, and, but have you thought about this other part of it? And um, no, I hadn't thought. And uh, what really always occurred to me was this thing. And all of a sudden, Charlie's walking down the road in the direction he wanted to go with this guy that was fighting him. And it's amazing. The guy's like pulling this way and Charlie's going to pull him this way. And he just kind of, yeah, but have you thought about this? Because the, the thing that always got me, there are ways to approach a topic. Ladies, back me up on this. It matters how you say it right? Sometimes we say it loud because no matter how I'm saying it, we're not hearing it, but, but it matters how you say it. And so this is what he's talking about is I'm not better than you just because I know something you don't, except for the grace of God. I have no hope of knowing these things. And, but, but I do know. And so let, can I please, can I just show you? I think that's the picture of what we're talking about with how Timothy has to respond. And you can just imagine a young guy that don't, don't let them despise your youth, a young pastor um, who's probably unmarried, who's, um, who's dealing with these people that are shredding him. Imagine how he's got to not be angry at them, not be bitter at them, and yet try to help them come to see how it is and not be quarrelsome and reject the, the foolish speculations. This is a mature calling. It's, it's, it's a challenge. And let me tell you, as a little baby in Christ, like all of us are, the best way I know of to be this way is to say, it's all about Jesus. He was reviled and abused more than I will ever be. It's really all about him and God. It's going to be God working in the person. No matter what I do, if, if God uses me in this, then, then that's what it'll be. It'll be God using me, but it's God and the person. That's really what I need to, to, to be focused on is it facilitating the person's relationship with God. So that perhaps God will give to them repentance unto the full knowledge, the epignosis of the truth. See, the way you get 
stability in something like what Timothy's going through when you're dealing with those that oppose and you have to be kind and gentle and yet correct. (sighs) The way to do it is to remember that this is a person's dealing with God, not with me. And if they're closed down to me being part of that, I've done what I can do as far as the interpersonal thing. I can pray for them and I will. And I won't do it like this. Oh, well, I'm just going to pray for you. I'm not going to do it that way, but I am genuinely going to pray for this person because I'm continually thinking this is about this person and God. It's not about me. And all of a sudden I've removed the greatest obstacle to ministry that every one of us faces. It's the person staring back at us in the mirror because we think it's about us and it's not. It's about their relationship with God. So we correct those who are opposed in humility so that perhaps God will give to them repentance unto the full knowledge of the truth. This is always going back to God. And it is maybe yes, maybe no. You want to let God have his way. Maybe he helps them. And that is uncomfortable for me. God, I want you to get this one. Check back. God, you haven't gotten this one yet. What are you doing? I want you to get this one. I have a past, uh, uh, one of my professors in seminary, John Hanna, would talk about how you just have to keep praying for people. He said, we prayed for our neighbors for 30 years before we heard that they had considered Christ and believed in him. You just have to put the pressure, but it's on God, not on the person. You want to be available for the conversation? I believe in an ongoing conversation with someone, not, not a one shot. You didn't believe. Okay. next person, an ongoing, like, let's, let's have another conversation again. Just keep the door open if you can, as it depends on you, but it's because God it's for, for God to give them repentance under the full knowledge of the truth. And so that they may come to their senses out of the snare of the devil. That's the reason for our compassion. This person that is causing the problem is deceived and trapped, ensnared. The word here, ensnared, or um, the snare of the devil, actually, uh, having been captured, this word for captured here means caught alive. Literally, it means caught alive. There's Zoe in the middle of that word. That, they may, that, that they've been captured by him to do that one, to do the, the devil's will. This is a thing about God and his enemy. That's really the the conversation. And when you go head to head, when you're dealing with something in a context where you might have to have a conflict, there's an attitude. We're gentle. We're humble. There's there's an approach. We're trying to help them. But there's also the security. This is about God doing something for this person who's been ensnared and deceived and trapped. That is helpful. That is so helpful, whatever the circumstance that you're in. Our Father, we thank you for the blood and the body and blood of Christ. We thank you that you have given us your son and he died for our sins so that we could have you. We could have an eternal relationship with you. Thank you for the promise that Jesus gave us that if we keep his commands in loving him, that you would make your abode with us. We would enjoy fellowship with you. Father, we have to confess at times we don't keep your commands. We don't think in terms of what you've told us to do. And so we are by that disobedience Um, bereft of what should be our birthright, our new birth in Christ with its eternal inheritance, which we enjoy right now. Father, help us to think this way about the way we should conduct ourselves in conflict, to be gentle, kind, and always mindful that this is about your work in this person's life, not about the relationship we have with them. It's about you. Father, it's challenging for us to do that. We know that we need your spirit to work in us to think that way when we're in the situation, thinking on our feet. 
Father, for those who don't know Jesus as their Savior, we pray for them that they would come to know that Jesus died for them. He paid for the price for their sin on the cross so that they could have eternal life. And simply by believing in Him, trusting alone in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they could have the life that we so greatly enjoy. Father, help us rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.